a warm welcome this evening. Thank you for coming. And thank you particularly to Rob, uh, Rob Wood, who has come from all the way from Northamptonshire, down the M1, made it. And uh, Rob works for an organisation called the True Freedom Trust. So um, I'll pray for you in a minute, Rob, but why don't you first just explain to us you know, a little bit about who you are um, and, the, and the True Freedom Trust. Sure. So, um, yeah, from Northamptonshire. Um, became a Christian when I was around 10 years old, 11 years old. I've uh, been a long journey since then. Um, I've been working for True Freedom Trust for about four and a bit years now. Um, and we've been around as an organisation for over 40 years. Um, so it's surprising to realise how few people have heard of us in the Christian world, really. Um, so there's two main pillars to our ministry. Um, the first is pastoral support and pastoral care, and supporting Christians who experience same-sex attraction, uh, but choose to live out the kind of mainstream Christian teaching on this topic. Um, so that's why the organisation was set up. Um, by a chap in the late 70s. And the second pillar is teaching on this topic, really. Um, so we're pretty shameless. We go wherever we're invited. Um, it's lovely to be here. But, um, yeah, so places like Oak Hill, lots of Bible colleges, um, conferences. Um, I was in King's Cross on Sunday, uh, Baptist Church, just teaching on this topic, really. Um, so there's wonderful opportunities. And um, we've got good friends at livingout.org as well who are basically our cooler cousins, we think of them. They're kind of much more well-known, and they're basically a more public-facing organisation than we are. We're more of a kind of pastoral support group um, for the church. Um, so that's a bit about who we are. Uh, do visit our website, truefreedomtrust.co.uk. Uh, we used to encourage people not to visit it, but now it's been updated and it looks a lot better. Um, so, yeah, please, please take a look at us. We've got around 40 voluntary workers throughout the UK, so... Um, we make a small amount of funds go quite a long way uh, so that we can support people partially. Uh, we've got two full-time staff, one being myself, another my boss, and around four part-time staff um, as well based in the Wimble. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's who we are. Great. Thanks a lot, Rob. So, um, Rob's going to be speaking... We think for just just under an hour, heading up to about nine o'clock, uh, with a bit of we'll be within that a bit of time to talk around tables as well, um, with around the material that he's introducing. Then we will have half an hour of Q and A. Um, so, as as questions come to you, do store them up, and there should be plenty of opportunity to ask those and have some good discussion. And um, aim to end at nine thirty. Let me pray. Father, thank you very much for bringing Rob here safely this evening and we commit our time together as we talk about this uh, issue of same-sex attraction, what it means for individuals, what it means for the church. Um, we pray that you would guide us from your word um, and we pray that you'd be with Rob as he speaks and help us to, to listen, to be wise, to be um, thinking of helpful questions to, to discuss this further. May all that we do and say this evening be for the honour and glory of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. Um, so we're going to be unpacking and exploring the topic of LGBT rights, uh, same-sex attraction, and how as a church we respond to them. Um, there's going to be kind of three broad areas. The first, which I'm going to try and be very brief on, is the biblical underpinning of our topic. Um, the second is the pastoral aspect of it. And the third 
is the more evangelistic side of it. Um, so yeah, they're the kind of three broad headings that we're going to look to cover. I've tried to centre everything we talk about around the gospel, the good news we have, and hopefully we all go out convinced that we do have good news for people in this area. And um, when I was first, when I first came to faith and growing up in the faith, the biggest challenge really um, in the culture, it seemed to me, was the science and religion kind of questions, you know, the challenge from the new atheists and that sort of thing. And um, now I'm often told that the biggest challenges that people have is the kind of big moral, ethical questions. Why would a loving God make someone gay and deny them the right to be in a loving relationship? Those kinds of challenges that can face us. Um, so we're going to be exploring how to respond to some of those. Um, why are we talking about this? Hopefully you don't need convincing that this is a subject we need to talk about. Um, but just to give you one stat that may help. Um, the ONS did a survey, and it claims that around 2% of the UK population identify as LGB, uh, lesbian, gay, or bisexual. But that number actually rises to 4.1% for those in the 16 to 24 age bracket. It's okay, so 2% of the population generally, probably higher in London to be fair, but 2% uh, of the population generally, and over 4% of those aged 16 to 24. I think that shift in figures between those age groups just highlights something of the cultural shift that we experience and that we have experienced here in the UK. Um, I think it's fair to say that in my parents' generation, the LGBT rights agenda would have been seen as extreme, uh, but now it's mainstream. And the mainstream Christian view on sexual ethics is the thing that's seen as extreme and potentially even immoral. Now, just as a way of expectation management, um, it's probably obvious to you that there's going to be no um, amazing answers to difficult questions. Uh, the answers are always the same as every other difficult question that faces the church. But hopefully we'll be able to kind of discuss them together, and hopefully some of my experience. I'm aware that there's going to be much more wisdom in the room than myself when it comes to scripture, but hopefully some of my experience could just steer us into exploring and answering some of these questions. So to get us going, I thought it would be worth discussing this question for just a couple of minutes. Uh, how does the topic of LGBT rights challenge the church? In what ways does this topic challenge the church? And then we're going to start looking through those three broad headings. Um, I'll take a little bit of feedback and change what I'm going to say based on it. Um, but how does the topic of LGBT rights challenge the church? And I'll call us back together in about two minutes uh, for us to move on. Okay, is that enough time? Kind of, I'm trying to force myself not to go on too long, so we have plenty of time for questions. So I'll keep us moving. Um, does one table each maybe want to throw out some of what was shared, starting with this table? So I was eavesdropping and it sounded very good. So. <laughs> Just do a summary, John. Yeah, do a succinct summary. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, yeah, there's issues around identity yeah. and, and how it seems to be more perhaps an issue sure. identity than, than perhaps other aspects of person, personality or what makes them. Yeah. Um, we have a whole different definition of 
sin and uh, the concept of same-sex attraction versus yeah. living out and that kind of stuff. Sure. Sin yeah. as in, you know, people, our culture maybe thinks that most people are not sinful. Sure. And then it's when you start talking about this that kind of misunderstanding starts coming out. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's really helpful. We are going to cover identity and hopefully some of those other <coughs> points as well. I think um, as Christians, we have the highest worldview out there when it comes to how we view LGBT people. You know, we say that they're created in God's image. They have inherent dignity, value and worth. And it's quite gutting in many respects to see that that just doesn't land often, that our worldview doesn't come across often as the highest out there possible, saying that all these people are valuable and loved by God. Um, so yeah, how do we get around that? And I suppose that identity question is one of the big ones that we're going to explore later. We also and talk about the uh, inclusivity. Mm. Jewish seems to perceive by the world as being exclusive. Yeah, sure. And on one hand, we talk about loving everybody, and yet, you know, the perception is that we, we hate you know, yeah. People. Yeah. So we love you, but there seems to be a bait and switch. Like, mm -hmm. but yeah, great. Um, anyone else? Maybe this side in the room. What you discussed? The group is more about sure. what we mean by rights and what I guess it goes back to what the definition of LGBT is, um, because if we're saying sin, yeah. if we view the act as a sin or not, I mean, sure. um, how does that link to your identity? And, and, and there's, some, there's a wide, um, yeah. broad, uh, there's various different perceptions of what LGBT is. Yeah, thank so you. Understanding how that fits into the church context. Sure, yeah, so... Because we refer to same-sex attraction, yeah. but is that the same as LGBT? Yeah. Because they don't refer to themselves as same-sex attracted. That's a good point, yeah. So LGBT stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and it's often used as an identity marker. And as Christians, um, the people we support, True Freedom Trust, thousands of them who experience same-sex attraction often choose not to use those identity labels. So whether the LGBT community would refer to us as gay or not is kind of up for debate. And, you know, language changes and the semantics shifts as well. And there's kind of an inner Christian dialogue about whether that kind of language is useful or helpful as well. Um, I personally try to steer clear of it. Um, but, yeah, there's some great points that have been thrown out. Um, I think it's worth just explaining before we get straight into our teaching um, a bit about where I'm coming from and my story, uh, hopefully just to set the tone for the evening. Um, so I first experienced same-sex attraction when I was around 10 or 11 years old. It wasn't something I chose to experience or wanted to experience or even understood um, to any degree. Um, I just remember hearing the word gay at school, that word again, and it was always with a negative connotation. And I remember thinking, I definitely don't want that word to be true of me. Um, I also became a Christian when I was around 11 years old. Heard the gospel message, Jesus died for my sins, he loved me, and I responded 
to that message. So as a Christian, I was wondering how I was meant to respond to these feelings that I was experiencing. Um, being British, I thought the best course of action was to ignore them. Um, even took one girl to McDonald's and the kind of date went downhill from there as a teenager. Um, and as it turned out, the kind of ignoring those feelings wasn't a great long-term solution in many ways. I always knew what the Bible taught, that sex is a good gift from God, but one to be enjoyed within a marriage of one man and one woman. Uh, that was what I was taught. That seemed clear and obvious to me. Um, but believing it and living it out were two very different things in many ways. Um, and as I grew older, as a teenager, and in my early 20s, uh, it seemed to me that the message from the culture was you are your sexuality, uh, gay is your identity, and the only way you're ever going to be happy and fulfilled is to live that out, to be true to yourself. And that was a difficult message to resist in many ways. Um, I remember a song um, called Same Love, which was really the anthem for same-sex marriage in the States. It had nearly 200 million hits on YouTube. And one of the lines said, live on and be yourself. When I was in church, they taught me something else. In other words, the church is harmful or immoral for giving a different message. And that was a difficult um, message to resist. And I had an extreme period of loneliness, really, in my early 20s. And I entered a same-sex relationship and tried my best to believe what's often called revisionist teaching, that says the church has always got it wrong and that God affirms these relationships. Um, as much as I tried, I wasn't able to do that. And for me, in the end, it came down to an issue of the Lordship of Christ in my life. Um, I was worshipping God on Sunday mornings. I was trying to be a good Christian, but there was this one area, really, where I felt that I wasn't submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And I felt led by the Holy Spirit to leave that relationship and follow the blueprint that seemed clear to me in Scripture of how I was to live. Um, that meant embracing the gift of singleness, which we'll talk about later on, which I soon discovered was actually a gift, wasn't just something that was said in scripture. And yeah, I still have those experiences. I still experience same-sex attraction. Um, and despite believing that trying and seeking to live out the blueprints that were given in scripture would be difficult and tough, um, I found out that it was really wonderful. And I'm going to try and smile throughout this evening to convince you all as well. And yeah, God's been really, really good. And um, it was just a pivotal moment in my life, really. And I think the Ministry of True Freedom Trust helped with that as well. And I've become convinced that we have good news for all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And this area of sexuality definitely shouldn't be something um, where we're not able to articulate that good news. Um, often there's a struggle within the kind of Christian heart of wanting to be loving, but also wanting to stick to scripture and to be clear. And as someone who was wrestling through these topics, I just assure you and affirm to you that that is the way to be loving. You know, Jesus came full of grace and truth, and the way to be loving is to be clear and to hold to the teachings of Jesus as well. So hopefully that just sets the tone for this evening. Um, why was it that I believed that? Um, I'm just going to share briefly, for about five or ten minutes, the biblical foundation for why I chose to live out the mainstream Christian teaching. I've entitled this a gospel-driven foundation, um, because this teaching, I believe, is fundamental to the gospel in so many ways. 
I think often there's a debate about what we're disagreeing about rather than the disagreement itself. It's about the nature of what we happen to be disagreeing about. So, three aspects of the biblical teaching. First, it's crucial. It's crucial. Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. There's a chap called J.I. Packer that helpfully summarised this verse um, when it applies to the area of sexuality. Essentially, there are things that Christians are called to believe in. Obvious, you know, who Jesus is, what he came to do. There's things that we're called to assent to. And along with that, there's things that we're called to hold to when it comes to the nature of repentance. You see, if we change what the Bible defines as sinful, we're changing what we're calling people to turn away from, to repent from, and therefore we're changing the nature of the gospel itself. So disagreements on these kinds of ethical issues may not sound like much to begin with, but actually they cut to the very heart of the good news of Jesus. It may sound very different in many ways to the core beliefs of the Christian message, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and that level of disagreement. And if we disagree on those things and, and we change what the Bible teaches on those things, then we're changing the nature of the gospel. But as I said, also, if we change what we're calling people to repent from, if we're changing what scripture calls us against God's will, against his blueprint, against his design, then we're changing the nature of the good news itself. So let's recognise the crucial nature of this topic. Uh, secondly, the biblical foundation. Uh, the Bible's message is crucial. The Bible's message is consistent. Uh, when I was trying to believe that the Bible said something different on this topic, so often people would point to those half a dozen or so verses that specifically mention same-sex practice, and they would try to unpick them in different ways and for different reasons. What I started to see was a, a consistency to the biblical message. So we have this verse at the very beginning of scripture. Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And there we have what we could call the biblical definition of marriage. And we could tie a thread around that verse that we find right at the beginning of scripture, Genesis 2.24, and pull it through the rest of the Bible and everything else that the scripture teaches on sex, on relationships, is built on that unchanging foundation that we find there in creation. And any and all sexual activity outside of that context, male and female marriage, is called sexual immorality by the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Uh, so how does this link us to the gospel? Well, we see that the Apostle Paul also quotes from and picks up on this verse. And Christ and the church, who are different to one another are going to be united to each other. I think that marriage shows God's passion for his bride, often used as a metaphor throughout scripture, and his commitment and his continued faithfulness towards her as well. And what's wonderful about biblical marriage, where new life springs forth from it, is that really it's a walking adver advertisement of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. It reflects and mirrors that good news. Uh, we're going to see in what way singleness is good news for you from the gospel as well in a moment. But definitely biblical marriage reflects the beauty of the gospel. And because it's so fundamental, because it's so important, as Christians we need to be clear about not changing the definition of it. Third, and finally and briefly, uh, the scripture's message is clear. So if you have a Bible, it would be great to open 1 Corinthians 
chapter 6. And we'll just spend a couple of moments, a couple of minutes in this passage uh, before moving on to the pastoral and evangelistic implications for us. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And again, with, this, with these verses, we see how vital this subject in many ways is to the good news that we have. Um, I'm sure you'd all know that Corinth was a very gifted church in many ways. Uh, but take a look at the refrain. I'm reading from the ESV, of the especially spiritual version. Um, so, verse 2, take a look. Or do you not know? And that refrain is repeated, verse 3, or do you not know? Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 15, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, do you not know? Verse 19, do you not know? Uh, there are things that the Corinthian Christians ought to have known, things that ought to have been clear to them, and things that they shouldn't have just known intellectually, but should have been living out as well. So what was one of the things they should have known? Uh, take a look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor the violets, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now first notice the importance of this topic, inheriting the kingdom of God, uh, the kind of crucial nature of this subject, as we've discussed before. Uh, then we've got a list of behaviours Paul is urging Corinthians to turn away from. Really, really important stuff here. He's not encouraging us to draw comparisons between these things. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, when a similar list, including men who have sex with men, is mentioned, Paul calls himself the foremost, or the greatest sinner, just after that. Which I think shows the heart of a gospel person when they look into these topics. So, Paul clearly talking about these behaviours that need to be turned away from. And then, verse 11, take a look. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Again, wonderful gospel verse there for us. Washed, sanctified, justified, made right by the Lord Jesus now, this list is about behaviours. It's not about identities, as we've already discussed. Um, it's about things, actions that happened. And I think what Paul's saying here is that the fruit will follow from the root. Um, if the root of being saved by faith alone, of being made right with Jesus, of being washed, sanctified and justified, is in place, then fruit will follow from it. And that doesn't mean that anyone who struggles in these ways or has fallen in these kind of ways is barred from God's kingdom. But what I think it does mean is that those behaviours will be turned away from over time. And one last implication for us. Take a look at um, verse 18. Paul urges the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. As we've established from Mark 7, any and all sexual activity outside of that Genesis 2.24 relationship. Uh, why would you need to flee something that you're not tempted by? I think so often people have misused that verse 11 to claim complete healing in this kind of area. Um, but no, as Christians, we will face temptation. We will be called 
to flee activities. And Paul wants us to see how crucial it is to flee from those kinds of activities that he's outlined. So that's the gospel-driven foundation for us biblically. The scripture's message is crucial, it's consistent, and it's clear. Uh, we'll have plenty of time in the Q&A to go over any of that or to ask um, further questions uh, that may be put to us about it. So moving on to our second big topic then, how do we respond to these countercultural truths, uh, which are very countercultural, um, in our church culture? And then we'll look to see how we respond to them as um, evangelistically as Christians. Uh, the first truth that would have been really, really helpful for me was for singleness to have been honoured. And that just would have been so helpful. Growing up, I really believed that heterosexuality, at least in part, was the goal of the Christian faith for me. And marriage was the ideal. And as beautiful and as good as that good gift is, um, Scripture is also clear about singleness being a gift as well. So how does singleness link to the gospel? And how is it that we should honour singleness? I think it would be useful to discuss this question. Um, this is some of the thinking I had to go through growing up. Be fruitful and multiply. It's not good for the man to be alone. Um, so often reading the Old Testament, it's hard to believe that singleness is a gift. Um, Jeremiah was single, but that seemed to be a prophetic judgment against Israel in a way. You know, things are going to be so bad that Jeremiah is even going to stay single. Um, so looking at those things, I was thinking, well, what does the church have? What should the pastoral culture be? regarding marriage and singleness. So with those Old Testament verses in mind, why does the New Testament describe singleness as a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, 7? Um, you may want to open Matthew 19, 11 to 12, and 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35 to help provide those answers. Um, so maybe if we open our Bibles, dig into that question and discuss it, and then hopefully I'll just briefly explain the answer that you're all going to come to anyway. So I'll give us a couple of minutes for that, about four or five minutes. Okay, great. Do you mind if I call us all together again now? Um, so as a church culture, how do we view singleness and, um, yeah, how is it viewed really and how is it seen? Um, hopefully the sort of discussions we're having, we could see that Matthew 19, some people make themselves eunuchs. Why do they do it? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Um, it seems to be a special calling on some people to do that. And 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Paul seems to have in mind that people would be concerned primarily for the Lord's affairs. Um, so how do we balance that with those Old Testament readings and the kind of wider scriptural um, truths as well? It seems to me that physical fruitfulness is a good thing that we honour and we embrace. Our marriage is a good thing. It reflects the gospel. Uh, but from testament to testament, uh, physical fruitfulness, as good as that is, um, now spiritual fruitfulness, I believe, is more important and should be um, the driving force behind our hearts and desires and passions as Christians. As I said, people make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, spiritual fruitfulness taking over from physical fruitfulness. And that seems to be Paul's concern as well. He wants people to be, quote, have undivided devotion to the Lord. 
Um, one part of honouring biblical marriage is that we recognise the commitment it has and the seriousness that it's meant to imply. And, you know, the Apostle Paul, for at least large parts of his life, was single, like the Lord Jesus. And it was probably helpful for him not to have to write home to his wife after the third or fourth shipwreck and all of that sort of stuff. And I wonder in our situations if we see things the same way. Um, essentially, I think the gospel and the good news of Jesus is the centre of gravity around which our marital status should revolve. And the gospel is the centre of gravity around which our marital status should re revolve. And um, I don't want to be trite, and I know singleness can be difficult, and it's not wrong to long for the other gift. Um, but I found that the more I struggled with the gift of singleness, the more I felt led to fall in love with the gospel. Um, you know, to read J.C. Wiles, The Cross of Christ, or something amazing. And then to notice that the objective gift of singleness is there in order to serve the gospel, to be more available, to have more time, etc., to serve in that way. It's a good challenge for us as a church culture, I think. Um, a church that honours singleness and marriage is going to be a countercultural church, which is much better placed to deal with these topics. So, singleness honoured, intimacy experienced. Um, I experienced a greater depth of intimacy with Christian friends than I ever experienced in my same-sex relationship. And that came as a shock to me, as a surprise to me, but there was a different type of intimacy on offer, a heart-to-heart, spirit-to-spirit intimacy. And when I left that relationship, I felt that I was kind of just consigning myself to a life of sadness and loneliness and frustration. Um, but that's not the case. Um, intimacy is there to be experienced. And again, if the good news of Jesus is the driving force for us, if that's the biggest desire of our hearts, um, then that's the best way that we can experience intimacy with Christian family as well. Um, Paul does not strike us in the scriptures as someone who lacked intimacy because he didn't have a sexual partner. Um, and all those people he seemed to be really intimate with, Timothy, for example, like a son with his father, he served with him in the gospel. And the gospel was the centre, and that common goal, that common mission, that common experience seemed to be what bound Paul to the intimacy he experienced with others. So again, putting Jesus at the centre, embracing that, is the way that intimacy can happen. Um, it's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis, where he describes friendship in The Four Loves, and his description of it is, oh, what, you too? As in, there's a common thread, there's a common theme, there's a common binding together. And as Christians, we have the same Lord, the same baptism, the same mission, the same passions. Um, you know, something to bind us together, whereby we can experience that intimacy. And linked to that, a family embraced. I found it really helpful to be embraced by the church family. And again, I found Paul as a helpful model here. Um, a real verse I love is in Romans 16, and it won't make it onto any fridge magnets. But it's where Paul talks about the mother of Rufus. And he says that the mother of Rufus was like a mother to him as well. Uh, it's that wonderful brief glimpse into the life of the early church where a new family had been formed. I found it really helpful when married people have invited me round, fed me, all the other stuff that, um, you know, they do so well. And just to know that you're part of that family that runs deeper than blood, that runs through spirit to spirit, has been so wonderful. Um, 
as I said at the start, these are broad truths that I'm sure we've tried to apply in many ways, but I wonder how we're doing with them. I wonder if the single person coming into the church on Sunday morning will recognise this is a church where singleness is honoured alongside marriage as both equally valuable gifts. It's not easy to walk into a church when you're single. Um, you know, how would that happen? I wonder if it's a church where intimacy is being experienced. Um, you know, in the depths of intimacy and love that we can experience with one another. It's one thing to say, this is the biblical teaching, here's how you've got to live. It's another thing to provide the pastoral atmosphere that can enable people to live that out. And I wonder how many people on the fringes of church life are doing. Do they feel invited and welcomed into the family? How warm are we? I know that warmth is a struggle for us sometimes. But, yeah. There are three things that I've found really helpful. So we've looked at a gospel-driven foundation, the biblical teaching. Looked at three points that have been really helpful for me in living out in a Christian life. Gospel-driven pastoral culture. The culture of our church. Um, remember Jesus said it's by the love you have for one another that people will know you're my disciples. Um, so before we get to the evangelistic thing, we need to know that we're ready to welcome people and love them where they are. And finally, thirdly, a gospel-driven mission. gospel-driven mission. I'll just give three pointers uh, before we close the questions and we can pick up on some of the more practical questions that we may face. Uh, three things, again, I found helpful. And the first is um, hearts before behaviour. Hearts before behaviour. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, so often, growing up in church, it seemed to me that there was an ongoing political commentary sometimes about what's happening in the culture, um, especially during prayer meetings. It would be 20 minutes of discussion before getting to prayer. And, you know, it would be... Often I'd get the sense it's that world out there which is wrong, which is challenging, which is changing. And that made me feel like it's you know, a problem for out there in the world. It can't be a struggle for someone in here, in the church. And not to preempt any questions, but so often, surprisingly often actually, so many of the questions um, fall into a kind of potential moralism, as if we're expecting people who aren't Christians to live like Christians. And I know that being a well-taught church, we wouldn't intellectually think that, but it's worth allowing that truth to sink into our hearts. Um, so I'll read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 5. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. I wrote to you in my letter from verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, on the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul's recognising church discipline here for people who say Jesus is their Lord. But he's being really clear, he's paining, going to pains to be clear that this doesn't include people who are outside the church. Uh, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We can't expect people who aren't Christians to live like Christians. And I think because so often the the sin on the topic of LGBT rights can seem so visible, it can also feel so challenging, and we can almost put it into a different category to every other sin and every other struggle which is out there in the culture. But putting heart before behaviour and reminding ourselves to do that each time is a really, really 
important truth for us. Now, what's the balance there? Obviously, we have good news from the culture. Um, political engagement is good. But as I said, we need to recognise that God changes someone's heart before he changes their behaviour. Second big truth. Um, there are three cultural bridges for us to recognise, I think, when it comes to this topic of LGBT rights. Um, I can almost guarantee, it's dangerous to guarantee, but I can almost guarantee that one of these bridges will come up when discussing this subject. Um, so we have the identity narrative, which was raised for us at the very beginning. Um, I mentioned the line from the song, Same Love. I mentioned that my story, the identity narrative, was really strong in the culture. And it's something that, yeah, people face all the time. Be true to who you are. Um, did, anyone, did anyone watch the Philip Schofield interview? Okay, so many of the responses to his coming out were, great, he's now being true to himself. He's being true to who he is. It's a big narrative out there in the culture that we face. Um, the second big narrative, I think, is the love narrative. Um, why would a God of love deny someone the right to be in a loving relationship? Or the Twitter hashtag, love wins, as if it kind of solves and answers every question we could possibly imagine. The identity narrative, the love narrative, and the freedom narrative. Um, I think this one kind of pulls between them both. People should be free to be who they are. You know, they shouldn't be oppressed like those Christians want, or people should be free to love who they want to love. Big questions, and often when interacting with people on this topic who don't know Jesus, these questions are going to come up in some form or another. And what's wonderful is these questions offer bridges for us. Because as Christians, we can feel like they put us on the back foot. Who wants to be against people being true to themselves? Who wants to be against love? You know, who wants to be against freedom? But as Christians, these three things give us a wonderful opportunity, I think, to recognise where people are coming from and share the gospel without it seeming like we're getting at them, without us going to Genesis or 1 Corinthians 6 straight away, because we have a better story on identity and love. You know, we tell people that they're more than who they happen to be sexually attracted to. Uh, they're created in God's image. They have inherent dignity, value and worth. Now, surprisingly, nobody's ever told me, Rob, you're the spitting image of God. Um, for some reason, that's never happened, because we don't reflect God's image perfectly. But Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he offers people relationship with him so that they can be who they were created to be. We have a better message on the identity narrative. The love narrative. Um, our God, who is love, is the one who gets to define the boundaries for erotic love. Um, as Christians, we believe our God is love, but he gets to define the boundaries. And beyond that, we say erotic love, contrary to what our culture teaches, is not the only or even the primary type of love that's experienced. A greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. We have a better narrative on love as Christians. And on freedom, probably a tougher one to articulate in many ways, but we have a better narrative on freedom. Um, those who sin are slaves of sin. And we probably wouldn't use that language with people who don't know Jesus directly. Um, but, you know, Romans 6 talks about being slaves of unrighteousness or slaves of righteousness. We're going to be a slave to something, but it's who the sun sets free 
who is free indeed. We have a better narrative on freedom. So just to close us up, really, um, I've briefly articulated those three better narratives. How would you articulate them uh, with people who you're interacting with on this subject? I've given some of the examples of the questions we would constantly get. Um, how would you articulate our better Christian story on identity, love, and freedom? It's maybe worth discussing this on our tables. Obviously, it would vary for different people, um, but it's worth having these narratives up our sleeve. And if we do, we're going to be much better equipped to deal with the questions that are raised. Um, so how would you deal with these questions, and what's your better Christian narrative on these subjects? And you might want to stick to identity and love uh, for the sake of time. But if we do that, I'll call us back together in a few minutes, about five minutes' time, and then we'll I'll read a verse, and then we'll phase on to our Q&A. Okay, great. I'll leave it there if that's okay. Um, just, so, just so we have plenty of time for questions. Um, you're all now well equipped to have been on that this morning sofa uh, a few days ago, which is wonderful, when that identity narrative came up. Um, it really will help to equip us. Um, so we saw heart before behaviour. Um, are we treating this topic the same as every other? Are we expecting a change of heart before God changes behaviour? Um, just as a metaphor for that subject, um, often people ask about schools and how we respond as parents to this subject, and it's not a perfect metaphor, but often I give the example of other religions. You know, what do we teach children about those friends and the parents of friends who follow other faiths? We teach that those people are loved by God, we teach that they're created in his image, and we teach that they believe things that are different to us, and they live differently to us. And as scary as this topic of LGBT rights can seem, and the differences that there are as well, I wonder if all of those same applications apply in this subject. Um, but so often I think the topic can just scare us away from seeing the parallels with other things. Um, seeing those three bridges, um, let's use those bridges that are provided for us for the sake of the gospel. And then finally, before we go on to our Q&A, let's proclaim a better message. I'm just going to read two verses from Matthew 13. And these verses really spoke to me powerfully when I was wrestling with the decision of whether to follow the teaching of Jesus and that narrow path that leads to life, or whether to um, carry on living in sin. Um, interestingly, verse 44 and 46, which I'm going to read out, comes around two, parallel, uh, two parables um, regarding the end times, if you like. So it's about the value of the kingdom here, and I think the eternal value is what's in mind contextually. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. The kingdom of God, knowing and being known by Jesus, his rule and reign in our lives, is more valuable than anything else this world is able to offer us. Enjoy, not begrudgingly, but enjoy this person in response to the invaluable treasure gave everything. And enjoy as a response to the pearl of great value, the pearl of great price, he gave everything in order and in response to God's kingdom.
And I suppose there are two big challenges for us that we're going to ask ourselves all the time until we die, right? Do we believe that? Do we believe that knowing Jesus is better than anything else this world is able to offer us? Because if we don't believe it, we're going to struggle when it comes to applying this topic in our lives. And the second bigger challenge in many ways is, are we living it? Um, you know, as a same-sex attracted person, being in the church, having people live out this truth in their own lives, with their own struggles, with their own temptations, is really encouraging. It doesn't have to be another single person. It doesn't have to be someone who experiences this subject. But knowing people are taking the gospel seriously and living in a way that shows that, yes, God's kingdom is more valuable than anything else this world has to offer is a real, real encouragement. You know, Jesus encouraged people to count the cost of being his disciple. He didn't hide the cost. And there is a cost of following Jesus in this area. But we see that the cost is worth it. The cost is worth it. Do we believe it? And are we living it? Uh, let's pray before we go on to questions, shall we? Father, thank you for your good news. Thank you for the gospel of God. Uh, thank you for the love that you've lavished upon us. Uh, help us to apply this good news into this difficult and this sensitive area. Help us to believe your truth. Help us to, a to be a people who are humble and contrite in spirits and who tremble at your word. But also help us to be a people who are in love with you, who are, have our eyes fixed on you, who believe that you're more valuable than anything else this world is able to offer and are living out that truth as well. For your glory we pray. Amen. 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 Um, so before questions, I've got two leaflets here. and I think we should have plenty to take around. Uh, the first is a quarterly magazine that True Food and Trust produce. Um, great articles in it, so do, do take a look at that. And the second happens to be the financial form um, for gifts and whatnot. Um, Stonewall, as an organisation, the LGBT rights organisation, has an annual budget of around £8 million. Uh, True Freedom Trust has an annual budget of around £150,000. Um, so it's pretty much a David and Goliath thing. So the most important thing for us is prayer, obviously, but um, yeah, there's information on what we do and how we could be supported there as well. Uh, would you guys like time to discuss any potential questions or do you want to go straight on to Q&A? Why don't you give us just one minute? Sure thing. Okay. Wonderful. Sure. Is that okay? Uh, wonderful. So call us back together. Um, I think we're going till half past. Um, I will repeat the questions, uh, and it also gives me thinking time as well. So I'll repeat those from the microphone. Um, for the recording. And feel free to chip in as well, as I say. Um, I won't have all the answers, um, but hopefully I'll be able to point to where the answers might be. Um, who wants to kick us off? Any questions? Sure, yeah. Yeah, um, so we were years back involved in their kind of launch and formation. So True Freedom Trust have always been an under-the-radar charity, really, to support the church. And it was felt that we needed a more public-facing organisation to articulate the Christian worldview to the culture, essentially. Um, so we got on really well with them. There's not a formal relationship, but we do joint conferences. 
Um, so we had Tim Keller two years ago speak at our joint conference in London, which was wonderful. Um, we've got another joint conference with them in June in London, and we kind of do joint speaker training and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's not formal, but there's lots of crossover and support between us. Um, they're a website, and they don't do pastoral care themselves, and they always send us all their pastoral cases as well. I think it's probably the same. Obviously, it depends um, where people are in the journey of faith, really, and their convictions of how they're living out that struggle. Um, the simplistic stuff really helps, like having a welcome team on the door that are, are actually friendly <laughs> and do smile and kind of welcome you. And all of that sort of stuff, it's incredible the amount of, sorry, this isn't meaning to sound harsh or anything, but just the amount of churches where that doesn't happen, like really, really simple fixes, having people who do welcome people through the door, who get to know people, who build rapport and that sort of stuff is so helpful and useful. Um, and then, yeah, I guess it just takes time to build relationships from that. Um, sometimes, and you don't want to overdo it, but being positive from the platform is helpful. Um, so, obviously, through the teaching and stuff like that. Um, as maybe, obviously, um, examples within preaching would vary for different people, and if someone's married, they're going to speak from their experience, but trying to vary it up and just giving a nod to singleness sometimes is helpful. Um, my vicar's really good at that, and he's married, so it should be more than possible. Um, but yeah, just feeling welcomed and loved and on the basic stuff it is good. Yeah. Just on that, and preaching and teaching, it, sure. does the same apply to how can you do? Like, is it possible yeah. to, to include another, uh, do the same thing with yeah. the same attractive, same sex attractive person without feeling that you, there's a spotlight then shining down? Um, yeah. Is, is it, do you, should preachers just try and go there a bit sensitively or? Yeah, um, it, it depends on the preacher, I guess. Illustrations are helpful. I think um, sometimes the illustrations it's, it's a ready-made illustration for things like biblical authority and walking with Jesus and all of those sorts of things and the struggles within the Church of England and Old Testament stories on division and prophecy and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I have a friend in a different church whose minister would use those as illustrations and he'd very much feel got at because of that, like, oh, he's always mentioning sexuality, when that wouldn't be in a case, but I think he was just hypersensitive to it. Um, so, yeah, it's varying it up, I guess. Um, Vaughan Roberts and people like that are ready-made examples of people who walk with the Lord. They're well-respected, they're single, and they're same-sex attracted. And, yeah, it makes for good illustrations now and again. Um, I suppose it just, yeah, you don't want to overdo it. I mean, the, the beautiful thing is, preaching through Scripture and being expository means you'll probably hit the right amount of time um, because you're going to teach on it as much as the Bible teaches on it, um, which is always a good rule of thumb, I guess. Um, so, yeah. I think I think in the possibility principle of that book yeah. it talks about being in youth groups where basically it was just constantly assumed that everybody in the room was heterosexual. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably changed now. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally.
Yeah. But having those examples, like, of people to look up to, I guess, and people who, like, that's what the plausibility problem's about, really, isn't it? Like, is this life plausible? Can, can a young person who has same-sex attraction think, oh, this will be a joy-filled life to follow Jesus in this way? And who's the examples of that? Um, yeah, and I guess it runs much deeper for us in our response to it. Like, I can almost smell the fear <laughs> or the apprehension in talking about it and just having that relaxed <laughs> posture and attitude and kind of being convinced in our own minds that, yeah, we have good news in this area is good. But, yeah. Sure. Is there anything that we as a church do think about when they come to people on the road accidentally? Yeah. What we say? Um, not that. I mean, I'm not here <laughs> on Sundays. So I'm sure Tom's great, so I'm sure the answer is no. Um, <laughs> but, like, what. It's not as bad as it was when I was growing up, I guess. The first sermon I heard on this topic was Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so I was in a Pentecostal church. And I'm not saying we shouldn't preach that passage, but at the end, the preacher said, just shut your eyes and put your hand up if this is your issue. And I thought, no chance. <laughs> like, I can't possibly follow that. So I guess like, the church has come a long way since then, um, which is good. And... Yeah, again, it, it depends where people are coming from, I guess. Um, sometimes the kind of old-fashioned language, um, you know, can be hurtful or, um, you know, people who mean well. Um, oh, yeah, but it's just like lying and stealing, isn't it? Like, to say that to someone who's in a loving relationship and say, oh, what, you're comparing my loving relationship to someone who lies and steals. Um, I, I suppose it's just being, having a sensitivity to where people are coming from. But it's hard to summarise what's done really badly. I guess because I was coming from such a low bar, <laughs> it's hard to pitch. But, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you quoted some stats at the beginning. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that was the ONS, um, and it was, I think it was two years ago, so 2017-ish, those figures. Um, so 2% of the population generally. Um, the biggest increase in that was the bisexual um, kind of label, if you like. Um, you're right, it is lower than the media would have us think, and I suppose because of, you know, the big human rights agenda, really, and everything that's being pushed from that. Um, why it is, I'll just be speculating, really, so I'd have no idea, I'm not a sociologist. My assumption and hunch, just from conversations I've had, is that people would often say, oh yeah, I had a um, same-sex crush, or things like that, but in the olden days, it wouldn't be admitted, or, um, you know, it, for some people, not for everyone like myself, but for some people, it could have been a phase as well, that kind of someone went through and those experiences weren't long-lasting. Um, now, I think, with the identity topic, labelling something at an early age changes the nature of things slightly. Um, so I think once you've put a label on something at 11 or 12, 
it's potentially more likely those things persist because the whole identity is potentially built out of that. Um, and yeah, it's kind of more acceptable, more spoken about, and I think honesty, because it's more acceptable, more spoken about, more people, younger people are able to be honest um, about those experiences, I think. So I think it's probably those two things together. I don't think there's anything in the water that has changed. Philip Schofield thinks interesting because he's yeah. said now in the media that he knew he was gay when he got married. Yeah. And you kind of think that is unlike. Is, 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 I mean, I'm sure it still yeah. happens, but like, I think you would assume people would. And, and he somehow felt unable to be yeah. honest about that in the 1980s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now he feels more able to. Yeah. So it may, it's to do with self reporting and. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that's one ready-made example, really. Um, I think one good thing we can say to younger people is like the pressure of putting a label on something and identifying. It's quite freeing to be able to say you have the freedom to choose not to identify in this way, you know, to, to wait and see how things are and to kind of take that pressure off as well. I think that's quite a freeing message for a lot of young people, which is quite inverse to what the culture teaches. And, you know, we're not saying you shouldn't feel this. We're not saying don't feel this way, but we're saying, you know, lots of people feel different things at your age. Um, you know, you have the freedom to, to not label yourself too soon, go easy, take it easy, and that sort of thing. And that's quite a countercultural message, potentially, from the church. Um, yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, unpack the response to the identity question of being the main God's image. Sure. Yeah. My mind, and thinking then descending to a kind of well, if I made an image of God and I've been made gay, I'm just wondering where that goes, or if you've had an experience of those conversations mm -hmm. heading down that path, yeah, not ending in a car crash, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't promise about my car crash, but but um, so how do we interact with people on the identity question? Um, it depends how biblically knowledgeable they are. We might want to link ident God's image to the dominion because that's kind of contextually how it's linked in Genesis. Um, but more broadly, it's a theology of the fall, essentially, and it's how we articulate that, which is where the eggshells kind of start to begin. So obviously, as Christians, I, I think using that example of we don't reflect God's image perfectly, that's obvious because look at all the problems around us. Um, I think using the biblical example of, um, you know, it's clear that God would expect us to have temptations to do things he says no to. If that wasn't the case, why would he say not to do them in scripture? You know, um, so kind of just drawing a distinction between being created by God and the fall, essentially. And that launches you right into the gospel story, which is quite helpful. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Um, yeah, the, the danger comes that comparisons are never good. So I'd say steer clear of comparisons generally. Because I was saying people don't want to be told it's just like your inclination to lie or cheat or steal or anything like that. Um, but speaking more broadly, maybe comparing it with other sexual attractions, like every single one of us um, has a desire to do what God says no to in this area. There's no one who has a perfect sexuality. And we're given a blueprint. We're designed and created in a certain way. And therefore, we're you know, asked to live out that design and that creation. Um, culturally, the body is done down quite a lot, and I think that's 
true in the whole gender area as well. It's kind of the feelings internally take precedence over the body, and the body could be shaped around the feelings rather than vice versa. So in that kind of discussion, you'll probably give a Christian view of a high view of the body. Um, the God who designed us, the God who created us, knows what's best for us. And as male and female, he's designed us in this way um, to live out those truths. Yeah, so essentially it's articulating the full. Um, yeah, and it depends where, how kind of knowledgeable someone is uh, when it comes to that articulation. Does that make sense? Yeah. I have a quick question. Sure. Well, it's yeah. not a quick question, but <laughs> in terms of the three, uh, the three possible bridges, yeah. the narratives that we have, or the better narratives that we have, yeah. would you use the same better narratives on the gender fluidity question? Um, obviously, there's LGBT. Yeah. T in and of itself raises more questions. So. Yeah. Um, I. I assume so. <laughs> like the gender question isn't our area of expertise, um, but I assume they would all work. I, th I think the gender question goes back to a fundamental definition. So in some ways, it's kind of easier. So the, the, the fundamental question and the fundamental definition is um, that the Judith Butler, uh, who was a feminist, said that genders performed and gender performativity. So basically completely severed from sex. Whereas I think the Christian worldview is that gender's never severed from sex. They go kind of hand in glove. Um, so yeah, the logical conclusion of the gender narrative that says it's severed from sex is the Facebook gender options, which is like 70 different gender options. And then that wasn't enough. So there was a free form field to kind of, you know, say what your gender is. And that's not to, to mock that kind of, those kinds of people, but that's where the logic of the narrative goes to, if gender's just performed. And yeah, exactly, it's a spectrum, it's self-defined, um, it's an identity that's chosen, it's not a gift that's given. Um, so yeah, the biblical worldview never severs them and never links them. Um, even in the Hebrew, you know, a, a son, um, when it says someone's age, it's a son of so many years. Um, and a daughter of so many years, kind of the gendered aspect is completely linked to the sex. Um, so as Christians, how do we respond to that? We don't want to be culturally stereotyping, um, but we want to recognise there's two genders that flow from two sexes, essentially, which is the scientific worldview, essentially, which is quite helpful as well. Um, so yeah, I think the three bridges can help, but taking people to that fundamental difference, really. Uh, here's why we believe what we believe is quite helpful. And again, that's stressing the importance of the body and our creation, going back to our design. And you're given a Christian worldview from that point of view as well, which is helpful. And we've got a few articles on uh, navigating gender stereotypes that kind of touch on those points slightly as well. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is tough. Um, 
Uh, I think it goes further than the gay question as well. It's the whole postmodern, you don't know my truth, my lived experience sort of thing. Um, you wouldn't say this, but there's a quote from Isaiah Berlin, which is, what makes men human acts as a bridge between them. And um, it's common to them and acts as a bridge between them. So scripturally, the human heart is sinful, it's sick, and therefore the human condition is shared and experienced. So kind of, yes, we can speak into it because we have the same experience at that fundamental level. I guess the solution to that is just speak into it because the truth is more powerful than what's what's put up so yeah and, and another solution is potentially to say yeah i don't know what that experience is like but you know these people are living out do and here's what they say um, what do you think of that you know and kind of passing those questions so they're kind of two options i reckon potentially yeah that's also yeah um, i have exactly what my question but coming across other christians yeah. believers who will say things like Oh well, God is so big, yeah. you know. Or that's great, you know. When, that, when somebody comes out, or yeah. um, and how do you? Cause you think they would be on the same biblical page as you? Yeah. That they they want it. They have more of that expansive mm. liberal view of what God yeah. says, not knowing what what's sure. Yeah, how do you deal with that, essentially? Yeah, when you're talking to your fellow believers, you just, sometimes it's more uh, shocking to hear what they just understand. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, I mean, it depends. I, I suppose what I'll try and ascertain is why is it that someone's got to that view? Um, and I suppose the two broad options within the revisionist teaching um, sometimes it's just taken culturally and just assumed. Maybe the faith isn't that deep, um, essentially, and the study isn't that deep. Um, if it is deeper, there tends to be the evangelical option that says we take the Bible seriously, um, but these six verses mean different things. So <coughs> if that's how they've got to it, um, then it's digging into those verses, and you know they're taking the Bible seriously. And yeah, it's kind of talking to them on, on that level while saying Jesus loved people, but he had an ethical standard. You can't say that those things don't go together and kind of, yeah, speaking on that level. Um, the second broad method, which is why it's so difficult sometimes, is if that's not the method they're taking, it's more of a hermeneutical method, which is the, the approach people take to scripture. Um, so there's a chap called William Loder who says that this topic's more about hermeneutics, how we view scripture, than it is about exegesis, what we take out from scripture. And because of that, there's just so many different approaches. Um, you know, so there could be a feminist reading of scripture. There could be, Steve Chalk is a classic example. He takes a liberal, um, a liberation theology view, essentially. He says that this, the Bible is having a conversation with itself. Um, one book is talking to another book. Um, who is it that stands judge and jury over that? Happens to be Steve Chalk, who gets to decide, <laughs> you know, which, um, which view is more pertinent and true. Um, so if that's the kind of approach people are taking, then, yeah, that's more from the academics and stuff. And there's good stuff that's been written on that. But the foundation isn't there in the first place. So I'd go back to Jesus, back to who he is. How can we know who he is if it wasn't for scripture, you know, and kind of back to the scriptural authority? And unless that first foundation's in place, it's going to be hard to, to have that further conversation. I suppose, yeah, the more heart-to-heart -heart is convincing them that it's possible to be loving 
and stick to scripture. And sometimes people who haven't done that much in-depth reading are just put off because they think those two things are incompatible. Um, yeah. Uh, last question, is that okay? If there is one, no pressure. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, just slightly first. Singleness is a gift. Marriage is a normal state of affairs. Singleness is more of a gift, which it puts it almost to a higher calling according to Paul than, um, than others. And so in looking at ministry in the church, I guess the question would be you know, the, how do the different ways to impact both the single and married, and how do single people, it seems that single, it's not just how we minister singles, but Possibly singles could even minister in, in ways that married people can and to other people so Yeah. I don't know if the question is more yeah. from just, instead of being a, a question of oh maybe they're gay, sure, you know, sure. how do you elevate to to more where Paul's talking to yeah. serve Christ and to I think that's the key, personally. Like, if the serving Christ is the highest ideal and the biggest goal, the biggest mission, the thing that youth are going to dream of, rather than the marriage, 2.4 children, not that that's bad, but, you know, the good job in the city, not that that's bad, but if the, the highest goal is kind of serving Jesus uniquely, then that's how it ends up being seen as a gift, I guess. Um, yes, yeah, single people can speak into married people's lives. I think historically there's been a kind of natural aversion to the Roman Catholic view, obviously, of um, kind of elevating it to that status um, within priesthood, which is obviously wrong. Um, and I suppose there's a discussion around the objective and the subjective gift. So the subjective calling to that gift might come through more in Matthew 19. Um, but I'd want to say that it's not just a subjective calling because 1 Corinthians 7, 7 seems to be one has this gift, another has that. It's objectively a gift, regardless of the one you happen to have, or the one you happen you wish you had. <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah, I suppose it's kind of holding those both of them in tension to some degree, um, which is difficult to do. But um, I think the more the Gospels, the kind of you know, clear goal, um, the better it is. John Piper's very good at that, I think. Often his talking of missionaries and how he speaks of um, biographies, um, that kind of comes through very clearly. You know, the glory of God's the highest ideal, and those people who served as missionaries, single, that unique gift helped them in that way. But um, yeah, I hope that helps, but it's, it's, it's tough to kind of explore. Right. Um, thank you very much indeed, Rob. No, uh, we're really grateful for you coming and um, giving us such a, a helpful presentation and I guess the beginnings of some questions and answers and things and uh, lots more for us to think about. So let, let's not stop the conversation there as a church and, um, and you know, this has been recorded as well so those who haven't been able to make it tonight will be able to access it and um, obviously if this raises things that you want to explore further, um, you can obviously talk to me or Corinne uh, in particular or small group leaders and, and one another as, as appropriate.
Um, there is the Ministry of the True Freedom Trust that um, wants to support in, in all the ways that Rob has uh, talked about this evening, so do look at that as well, and also living out. Um, I guess Rob will stick around for a minute or two and um, take any further comments, questions, and look at his resources. Um, but, um, and, and yeah, just we, we want to be, I guess we, you know, we talk about this from time to time, but we, want, you know, we do want to be a church that does the things we've been talking about this evening, don't we? So um, we want to be a church that welcomes all while being faithful to what the Bible says um, and uh, where every Christian is denying themselves, taking up their cross and following Jesus in whatever way that looks like for them in their life and their calling at that time. And that's for single people, married people, same-sex attracted, heterosexuals, everybody. So um, let's, let's keep on encouraging each other in that. And therefore, you know, if you, th- if you have thoughts on where we do that better, please feed those in and let's, let's help each other grow in this and, um, and, and do better. Um, let me pray now. Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for all that we've thought about um, and uh, uh, for encouraging us in your word. Thank you for, for uh, both truth and grace that we find in the Bible. Thank you for how uh, you have high standards that you call us to in the area of sexuality. Um, high standards that reflect your love for the church and your son. Um, and you call for uh, marriages to reflect that love that Jesus has for the church. But you also call for, um, for, for all of us, married or single, to reflect that love in different ways. And we pray that we would do that. That we would know you for ourselves. That we'd lead, be able to lead others to, to know you too. And as a church we would be doing that. Help us to, to truly welcome Uh, everybody um, and to point them to Jesus who calls all of us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him and we pray for Rob we thank so much for him and for the ministry of True Freedom Trust and we pray for him and for for the charity as they um, uh, as they minister with with relatively limited resources we pray that they would be wise as they use them we pray that it would be for the good of your church we thank you for their faithfulness we pray that you would keep them Uh, walking closely with you and for all those that they support pastorally we pray uh, for that work uh, that it would support um, the ministry of local churches where we pray that would be happening too and uh, we pray uh, above all that Jesus would be glorified in all of these things we pray in Jesus name Amen. Amen